0: Morning again, Redeemer. My name is Dave Furman. I'm the senior pastor here at the church, and it's wonderful to worship God again uh, with you. If this is your first time here and just kind of coming on in, we're glad that you've uh, come to be with us today. We want to welcome you. I'd love to meet you after the service. I'll be up here at the front. I would love to greet you and get to know you a bit better Uh, But my hope for you and my hope for all of us as we gather again on another Friday, these things can get kind of routine as we do this week in and week out, but I don't want us to miss, I don't want us to forget how astounding it is that we get to meet here freely in the center of a shopping mall in Dubai. Really don't want us to miss that. This past week, this reality hit me again As I was reminded that millions of people around the world don't have the freedom to worship God publicly like this. You know, I read of a church building in Cairo that was burned down this last week, 12 dead. Violent protests have broken out across Nigeria this past month after their elections. Angry crowds have burned homes. 150 churches burned to ashes and over 500 dead. Pastors in prison in Vietnam and Iran merely for getting together with other Christians to sing and to pray and to read the Bible. Friends, what we're doing here in the middle of the Arabian Peninsula is nothing short of astounding. And we give glory and praise to God. How many of you uh, on Friday were at the baptism service? Were some of you uh, there on Friday? It was just a wonderful time. Looks like lots Uh, came for that wonderful event. I mean, it was incredible, and I don't say this lightly. I know I get excited about a lot of things, and I have a lot of favorites in the world. Well, uh, I don't think this is an underestimation for me to say that one of my favorite things that we do as a church is to gather together to celebrate baptism. This visual display of the gospel, of these lives that have been changed and transformed by Christ. And we were able to preach the gospel and hear testimonies and sing out in the open air here in our city It's incredible. And did you catch the significance of what we've already done this morning? Here in one of the busiest shopping malls in the Middle East, we've already sung the gospel loudly. We've opened our Bible and we've read from it. I mean, this ought to be sobering for us that many of our brothers and sisters are being killed around the world for doing what we've already done this morning. So this ought to move us to pray more fervently for the persecuted church and it ought to move us to rejoice in thanksgiving for the mercy that we're given here. And also to praise our leaders and those rulers over us in this country. And we've said it before, but it bears worth reminding that we live in a wonderful place. It's a wonderful privilege to live in the UAE. And Lenny, Glenn, and I had the opportunity to uh, go to a meeting at Sheikh Mohammed uh, Center for Cultural Understanding in Bastakia this past week. Uh, we met a new friend, a local man, who uh, is the general manager of the center. And he was telling us how encouraged he is. Uh, for the leaders of this country and how they allow religions to practice freely in this land and how thankful he was for his fellow uh, friends in the ruler's court who provide that for us. And He even said that he's asked quite often by new people who visit where's a good church uh, that they could go to. And so he said he's excited to now know us and meet us so he could send and refer people uh, to our church here on Friday mornings. And so I was thrilled again and I appreciated again the openness that we have here. And it encourages us to be thankful to our rulers and leaders here. And I was able to express that same thanksgiving uh, to him that day. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. It ought to, for the time that we're here, it ought to drive us to maximize our opportunities. That the door here in the UAE, the door to the gospel for this time is open. The door to the gospel is open. It ought to encourage us to maximize each minute of every day that we find ourselves in this land. So I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to maximize opportunities to worship God together with other believers. So whether it's in our men's ministry and women's ministry to study the Bible publicly, which we get to do. Whether it's coming uh, to our classes and whether it's just sitting here in our services where we sit under the teaching of God's word. I pray that we would do so joyfully, that we would apply the truths of Scripture to our lives, and that we'd live out our faith faithfully in this land for as long as God would give us this privilege to be here. Well, let's go to him in prayer again, asking that he would bless these few minutes that we now publicly open his word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open our ears to hear. And open our eyes to see your truths in Scripture this morning. Father, what a joy it is that we get to do this publicly here in the center of Dubai. We praise you for that. We don't take that lightly. We feel a sense of stewardship for that, Father. And so we pray as we open your Scriptures. Father, would you... Teach us clearly and open our hearts, soften them. Make us receptive to your teaching. Father, we pray that you would do an incredible work in our hearts, even today. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, if you haven't already turned in your Bibles and you have a Bible with you, please turn to the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 8. It's the second book of the New Testament, the second Gospel, where we're looking at the life and times of Jesus Christ the Savior of the world. As Frank so wonderfully read the passage for us, you may have already noticed or perhaps you've already experienced a little bit of deja vu. Was that your experience this morning? As this passage looks remarkably similar to the one that we studied just a couple months ago on the feeding of the 5,000. And some scholars remark that this is the same miracle, but we know it's a different one because the numbers are different, the place is different, the people are different, the leftovers are different. Those same scholars, the reason they argue this is because they can't believe that the disciples wouldn't get it the second time around. They just can't believe that. But see, that's the point of the miracle, isn't it? The point is that the disciples, they don't get it. That's the point, See, the Bible's full of astounding miracles we see in the Gospels here, and yet we know time and time again that miracles don't convince people. They don't. They can see the miracles happen. Multitudes are being fed. The blind have sight. People are being raised from the dead. They don't question the miracles. They don't question what's happening, but they question the authority of them. Who's doing them? See, the disciples had seen Jesus walk on the water. They'd seen him feed thousands just days before this, but they don't understand. They can see it, but they can't really see it. And we'll see that the Pharisees are even worse off. These guys are completely blind to the things of God. Now, the people in our story today all struggle with the age-old problem of unbelief. They don't understand who Jesus is. They are confused. They don't believe. Well, How about you this morning as you uh, sit here in this hotel? How are you doing with belief? Are you struggling with unbelief? Or maybe you know the truth about Christ intellectually. You know the truth of the gospel, but your life doesn't indicate that truth. Well, fellow Christian, have you seen God's powerful work in your life in the past and yet you're anxious about the future? Maybe you're a parent who's dealing with one of your kids, you're having a hard time, you feel like you're at the end of your rope and you've got nothing left to give. Or maybe you're dealing with a boss this morning who makes your work life hard. Do you doubt God's care and compassion and do you doubt God's ability to give you grace to face what you're facing? Or perhaps you feel alone. Maybe you've been single for so long that you're just lonely. Friends, have you forgotten that you are never alone, that your Savior is always with you? Or maybe you're up to your ears in debt. You feel suffocated under the calls of creditors. Are you tempted to give in? Do you quit when times are tough and you wonder if God's promises are true and you stop believing that Jesus can get you through this? Friends, in those instances, do you remind yourself of the great gospel, that God in the gospel has saved you through Christ? In those times of unbelief, do you come to him in prayer, asking for his help? Or have you simply stopped believing that God can do anything? Maybe you've stopped praying altogether. Maybe you've stopped talking to God. Maybe you've stopped believing that God even cares. Friends, could it be that your lack of joy isn't caused by your circumstances? It's not your loneliness. It's not your debt. But perhaps your lack of joy is in your unbelief that Jesus is who he says he is. See, at the root of your anxiety, at the root of your worry, at the root of your stress, is the fact that you don't believe God cares for you. You don't believe God is compassionate towards you. You don't believe that God is in control. In that very moment when you're anxious and you worry and you doubt God, in that very moment, you aren't believing that God is God. Or maybe you're here today and it's quite clear you don't believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Maybe you're here this morning and you like our services, you like the people, you like the way it makes you feel on Fridays. It gives you kind of a a recharge To get you through the next week and yet you are unready to commit to God and believe. Well, If that's you this morning, I'm glad you're here. I praise God that in His sovereignty He has brought you here this morning. But friends, the problems in your life are caused by your unbelief. Whether you're an unbeliever or whether you're a believer and follower of Christ, unbelief will rob us of our joy and it will leave us in great distress. It causes us to be spiritually blinded, to fail to understand who Jesus really is. And we'll see this played out in two ways in our passage this morning, two points uh, this morning uh, that we'll be looking at in this text. First, we'll see blindness, and then second, we'll see seeing, blindness and seeing. It's a simple outline, just two words, I'm trying to do penance and make up for my 57 points that I had on my resurrection sermon a couple weeks ago. Try to give your hands a little rest. Just two points, just two words this morning for our outline, blindness and seeing. And we'll begin in verse 1 with blindness, with the feeding of the 4,000. As we said, it's similar to the 5,000, but this time they're in Gentile territory in the Decapolis on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. There are at least 4,000 people and they're quite devoted to Jesus. They've been listening to him for three days and haven't had any food. Now this is incredible to think about. Now I'm not going to call you out, but I can assume that even just in our services this morning that there are times when your mind starts deviating towards food down the hall. You start plotting what you're going to have for lunch. You start dreaming about that grilled stuffed burrito at Taco Bell. You can't get your minds off of it. I'm not going to call you out, but you know who you are this morning. If that's you, these folks were listening to Jesus for three days without any food. It's amazing. They were enamored with this teacher. They were enamored with what he was saying. And the text says that Jesus hurts for them, that at the end of three days, he has compassion for them. It literally says that he was moved in his inner organs. Jesus has gut-wrenching emotions for this crowd. It's really a remarkable compassion when you think about it. Not because he does an incredible miracle of healing or because he raises the dead. No, it's because he's showing his compassion for them for something as simple and small as hunger after a few days. I mean, I love this about Jesus. I love the tender mercy of Jesus. I love how these people have traveled a great distance and he's worried about whether they're going to collapse and faint on the way home. And he wants to feed them. I mean, do you get a sense of the sensitivity and care for Jesus in this passage? Do you see his gentleness? Fellow Christian, Jesus cares about you. He cares about the little minute details about your life. He cares about every issue you're going through, every anxiety you're going through, every worry that you're dealing with. Jesus cares. Merely the weakness of this crowd moves Jesus to gut-wrenching compassion. Now, friends, he cares about your pain. Even what might seem trivial, he cares. And he says, cast your anxieties upon him, and he will give you rest. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what he's saying. Are there any needs this morning that you have been too hesitant to bring to him? Friends, don't wait. Don't be hesitant. If you're hurting, tell him. If you need something, tell him. If you're scared, tell him. If you're lonely, tell him. If you have trouble sleeping, tell him. If you don't know how to pay for your rent next month or even for your lunch after the service, tell him. Come to Jesus. He cares about every little detail in your life. He cares about you. He's our compassionate Savior. He loves and cares for you in every way. Here's a simple equation that might help put this in perspective. Simple equation. Christ's compassion plus Christ's power equals everything I need. Let me re- repeat that equation here. Christ's compassion plus Christ's power equals everything we need. It's an equation Paul Tripp has come up, come up with that I've tried to adopt for myself See, Jesus is tender and compassionate and powerful. That's everything we need for life. It's everything we need for godliness. It's all we need. Jesus is compassionate, but we see here that the disciples, they just don't get it. In verse 4, their response to Jesus wanting to feed them. Will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? I mean, Jesus, look at the facts. There are no stores out here. There's no food. There's no restaurant for kilometers, no McDonald's, no shawarma stands. Let's just send everyone away. Let them go. Dismiss them. We can't help them. And the response is utterly ridiculous, right? You say, what? What in the world? How many times is Jesus going to have to provide in front of the disciples for them to get it? How is it possible that they would ask the same question again? Same question from Mark chapter 6 we see again here in chapter 8. They've witnessed the miracles and yet they are utterly unprepared for this moment. No, their response should have been, Lord Jesus, you are able, please provide. We remember back in the Galilean countryside when you fed that huge crowd of 5,000 plus When we took these big baskets of bread and baskets of fish and we fed man, woman, and child. And we walked up and down the Galilean countryside until every last person was not only full, but they were satisfied. And then we came back up to you and we looked you in the eye and you provided more bread and more fish. And we fed the crowd. We fed them fully. You had provided so much so that each of us actually had a reminder of your faithfulness. We each of us carried a full basket of reminders back to you at the end of the feeding. Oh Lord Jesus, you can provide. You are the bread of life. Do it again. But instead they don't believe. They doubt. And so Jesus goes ahead. He feeds them anyway. His compassion is overflows and he feeds them. He feeds the 4,000 and the disciples come back with seven basketfuls left over. Now we don't know if this number is significant or not. It may be the number seven could signify the number of Gentile nations or maybe the number of completeness that we see throughout the Bible. Seven is a meaningful number. Remember in Gentile territory, they're there at the Decapolis now and it's no accident that Mark puts the story after the story of the Syrophoenician woman. Jesus is compassionate, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. Jesus is showing us that his compassion doesn't draw a line down racial lines. He's not compassionate for these people and then withholds his compassion for these other people. No, Jesus' compassion is for all people, Jews and Gentiles, everyone. He loves them and he cares for them and he shows his compassion to them. That's the point here. The point's not the numbers. The point is that every last person was fed and there was more than enough. It was an amazing miracle, an amazing display of God's power and God's compassion in Jesus. So certainly the disciples will finally get it, right? Well, not exactly. In verse 14, we see it again. Another episode here. They're in the boat again. And they realized they had forgotten to bring bread. Jesus had just provided food for thousands and thousands and they forgot to bring their own bread for their own meal. Jesus speaks up and tells them to watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now if you're anything like me, then you might need a little explanation on the meaning of yeast in cooking. Now it's widely known that I like to eat, but I have no idea how to cook. I still remember that fateful day in 19, I think it was 1998 when I tried cooking. I had purchased a blender and made a protein smoothie in the blender and realized that that was virtually all I could do in the kitchen. Got married, all I had was a microwave and a fridge. Praise God, my wife can cook and that she keeps me out of the kitchen normally. So I've perfected Subway on the speed dial as my contribution to dinner here and there. That's all I know. So I had to actually look up on the internet, what is the role of yeast in cooking? Perhaps some of you know this, but yeast is actually a fungus. Do you know that? It's a fungus, one cell at a time, it multiplies itself and it works itself slowly and shapes and creates the character of the dough. It's primarily seen in the Bible as negative in that it corrupts. Oftentimes in the ancient world, a portion of the previous week's dough was stored in suitable conditions. And along with some added juices, it would promote the process of fermentation. But this homemade rising agent had all kinds of health hazards because it could easily become tainted. It could spread the poison when baked with the rest of the dough and in turn infect the very next batch. That's the idea Jesus uses here referring to his enemies who could infect the disciples. Jesus is telling the disciples, Beware of the Pharisees and of Herod. They will corrupt you. They will ruin you. We don't see exactly what toxic flaw Jesus has in mind here. But the context points to their obstinate refusal to believe in spite of the evidence. In spite of the evidence, the Pharisees and Herod were hard to Christ. They will not admit the truth, let alone embrace it, even when it stares them in the face. We see these same Pharisees in our passes in verses 11 through 13. They go to Jesus and ask for a sign. They want to see a sign that would prove Jesus' identity. They're completely blinded to him. But we see the Pharisees, they weren't asking so that they could believe. That's not their intention. That's not their hope. They had come to test him, not to trust him. They wanted to stand over him in judgment, but Jesus wasn't going to play their games. Jesus never plays games. He doesn't fall to the wishes of those hardened to him. No, he knew their hearts. And so he rebukes these Pharisees. And he says, I'm not going to give you anything else. Haven't you seen what's happening here already? You've eaten the bread here in this miracle and you don't get it. I... I am the bread from heaven. I am that sign that you're asking for. Do you see that I am the ultimate sign who has come from heaven? I'm that which you are asking for. You are looking at him and you're missing it. If I'm not enough of a sign for you, then nothing else will satisfy you. And so Jesus is telling his disciples here, don't get corrupted with this wicked thinking of the Pharisees. Don't be blinded by unbelief. But the disciples still don't get it. They look at each other. Is he saying that we have no bread? Andrew, did you forget to take the bread? Thomas, have you eaten it already? I know we're always keeping our eye on you. Why isn't there any bread? All they can think about is where's the bread? They're worried about it. And they had just seen another miracle where God provides for thousands You think if there's anything that they could cross off their worry list, it would be bread, right? I mean, seriously, we saw Jesus feed the thousands and then again the thousands. Let's figure that with Jesus, we're okay on bread, right? We figure we can make it on bread. Twelve of us, no bread. Jesus, we're okay. We'll get fed. No problem. But did you notice in this passage... Something a little interesting as you read it. You may have noticed that the disciples are saying there's no bread. But you notice what the narrator, what Mark tells us in the text. Did you catch that? Mark is reminding us that there's one loaf in the boat. Do you see that? He says there's one loaf. Now why is that? Well, I think Mark is reminding us that there is one loaf in the boat, and that loaf is Jesus. Jesus that Jesus is the bread of life. In John chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, that account, Jesus goes on to say, a lengthy account, that I am the bread of life. So Mark is telling us here that Jesus is the bread of life and that, that that the disciples should have gotten it. They should have known that Jesus could provide everything that they needed, that he is both compassionate and he is powerful, and that that is everything they need but they missed this instruction. So here's the deal with the disciples. Either Jesus chose the 12 stupidest people to build the church, or or our problem is not an evidence problem, but it's a belief problem. That it has nothing to do with the evidence. See, you can stare Jesus right in the eye and tell him, I don't believe you see, that's what the disciples were doing. They were looking at Jesus right in the eye, the bread of life, and they were saying, I don't believe you. You fed all these people, yet I don't believe. You see what this means for us as a church? It means you can be with Jesus and still not get it. It means you can come to church and you can miss him. It says that you can go to a small group each and every week and you can miss Jesus. It says you can read your Bible each morning and you can miss him. You can be so close to him and yet be so far. I wonder how many of us just missed Jesus. The disciples were with him. The future leaders of the church were with him and they missed him. Was there any hope for their blindness? Is there any hope for our blindness? Well, that moves us to the second point in the passage, seeing. So we see the blindness. Let's look at this second thing we see in the passage, seeing. And we see Jesus illustrates the disciple situation in the form of a healing at the end of the passage in verses 22 through verses 26. It's interesting. Typically, when Jesus heals someone, it happens instantaneously. The person receives healing in an instant paralytic's walk. In an instant, the scaly, weak skin of a leper is strengthened and restored. In an instant, the dead rise. But here, there are two stages. It's the only two-stage miracle that we see here in the Gospels, that we read in Jesus' ministry. There's absolutely nothing else like it. And it's not because Jesus just failed the first time or that he can merely muster half the power the first time, and then he had a big lunch, and then he can muster the second half of the power afterwards. No, it's not that Jesus failed. Jesus is all-powerful. No, it's that he's being very intentional and very instructive for the disciples and for us. No, the first time he spits on the man's eyes, and he puts his hand on the man's eyes, and he begins to see. The man begins to see, or at least a little bit. Begins to see people as trees walking. But it's still not clear. And Jesus spits on his eye again. He puts his hand on his eye. And this time, his sight is fully restored. It's perfect sight, 2020 vision. He can see. So, why the two stages? Why not instant healing? Well, it's because Jesus is showing an illustration to the disciples and to us. Mark is showing. Us that our spiritual sight comes in stages. Like the man whose sight came in stages so the disciples' spiritual sight would come in stages gradually more and more. First it would be out of focus. It would be blurry. And then finally and eventually at the cross and then after the resurrection of Jesus it becomes crystal clear. The disciples see perfectly clear. No, we did this miracle so that disciples would realize that they had eyes to see but could not see. And yet Jesus is incredibly patient with the disciples. I love Jesus' patience with these hard-hearted disciples. And he's incredibly patient with us. Some of us have been incredibly slow to see, haven't we? We see, but we don't see. We hear, but we don't hear. We know the truth, but we don't trust in him and believe in him regularly. You remember those questions that I asked you in the beginning of the sermon? I asked about your anxiety and unbelief in parenting and your workplace. I asked about your loneliness and your debt. See, Jesus is telling us in this passage again, trust me. See what I've done with the loaves. I care about you. Trust me in your greatest anxiety. Trust me with your money. Trust me with your time. Trust me with your loneliness. Now, fellow Christian, our anxiety, our unbelief, our blindedness is caused ultimately by unbelief in God and His promises. It's a result of not seeing clearly. Maybe you're seeing men like trees walking. Maybe you're struggling with belief today. You understand that God is who He says He is, but you just struggle to grapple with that truth. You want to believe, but you're struggling with it. I want to encourage you to ask God, to beg God to make your sight clearer. To beg God for his help. And to remind yourself of God's promises in the Bible. That God is capable of doing everything in your life. Remember Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Remember his truth at the end of chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Then he goes on to say, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, if you're struggling with your sight, if you're struggling with unbelief, if you're like these disciples who just can't get it, friends, ask God to help your unbelief. Pray to him. Humble yourself and ask him to help you. If you're struggling with unbelief, also remind yourself of what God has done in your life. If you're a believer, remind yourself of your testimony of how you came to know Christ. If you don't know what a testimony is, it's just reminding yourself of your life before Christ saved you and reminding yourself that you were steeped in your sin and then to remind yourself of how you came to faith. How God drew you to a place of repentance and belief. And then to marvel afterwards at how your life has changed since coming to know Christ. Now, friends, remind yourself of the power of God at work in your life in bringing you to Himself. Be encouraged by that. Friends, if you're struggling with unbelief, also remind yourself of what God's doing here in the church. It's incredibly encouraging. The baptism service on Friday night was like a shot of adrenaline, of encouragement to my soul, because we were able to hear testimonies of life change. It's a great encouragement to me. I loved hearing testimonies of repentance, meaning the lives have been changed, the people have forsaken their sin, that they now grieve their sin against God, and now believe in Him for salvation. I loved hearing that. And one of my favorite testimonies was actually one off the record afterwards from a wife of one of the men being baptized, when she told me, Pastor, our lives have been completely changed since my husband came to Christ a few months ago. Our marriage is completely transformed. He treats me completely different. Our family life is completely transformed. Our lives are completely different. And we praise God and praise Him for what He's doing in this church. And I was just greatly encouraged. It greatly encouraged my belief that God is doing a great work. In our midst, he is doing a wonderful work. Friends, if you're struggling with unbelief, look at what God is doing in this church and transforming sinners and drawing people to himself on a regular basis. Be encouraged. Now friends, remind yourself that the Savior can feed the masses. He can heal the blind and he can help your unbelief. He's a compassionate God. He's a powerful God. He is everything we need. Friends, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, we are so thankful that you are here. But the truth is, with all of us, that from the beginning of time, with the fall of Adam and Eve, every person has been born spiritually blind. It's not an artificial blindness, it's a profound and total blindness. It's living in darkness with no light at all. This is the diagnosis of the human condition for all of us. All of us have sinned. In his autobiography, C.S. Lewis described how he found inside himself a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, and a harem of fondled hatreds. And the same can be said of you and the same can be said of me. That we have all sinned and rebelled against a perfect God. And yet even in our turning from him, even though we have rejected him, we literally walked away from him gladly, enjoying our sin. Even in spite of that, the king, Christ himself, came to earth. He marched willingly, carrying a cross to his death taking upon the full wrath and the full justice of God that each and every one of us deserved to bear. And yet instead, he bared it. A death utterly gruesome because our sin, wretchedly horrendous. This was done to glorify God and to take away our sins. And yet the Bible is clear that this reconciliation with God and this free gift of life isn't given to us through a lifetime of hard work, Or the accumulation of points with God, as if we can contribute anything to this? No, the Bible says we must repent of our sin. We must turn from our sin, feeling the weight and the gravity of what we've done, and believe in Jesus. And see, here's the thing that we see in this passage, and we're reminded again that even even when this light is the brightest, when the light is standing in front of you, like Jesus was in front of the disciples even when the light is looking you in the eye and you can literally reach out and touch the light, when you can see the power of the light displayed in miracle after miracle, day after day, there is still in that moment no capacity in the blindness of the human heart to comprehend it. There's no power to understand it apart from God's work. Apart from God, we are all blind to him. It's like taking a blind man to an art auction and telling him to choose the most beautiful painting and you'll buy it. It's absurd. The blind person cannot will himself to see. He can't try harder to see and escape the blindness. No, there's nothing that person can do to escape their condition. They're blind. They need someone to miraculously open up their eyes. And that's what salvation is to us. It is God opening our eyes to see Him and all of His glory as the Savior of the world. Now, this ability to see spiritually is a gift, not a human ability. We don't hear anything in this passage here at the end of the man's faith or behavior in this story. No, there's no hint that his faith grew as his healing progressed. No, God is wholly at work in salvation. He's the author of salvation from the beginning on the end. He chooses us he calls us to himself, and he brings us to faith and saves us. And not only that, he perseveres us to the end. And there's nothing we can do to break that. It's God's work. Well, some of you are saying today, Dave, I, I hear this, I just need more time. I need a few more sermons. I'm still doubting the resurrection, or the Bible, or God's love, or Jesus' claims to deity, or whatever else it is you're struggling with today. I want to tell you that maybe your quest for more evidence isn't really because you need more knowledge. Maybe you have a non-objective problem and you are just postponing belief. And if you've come here for any length of time, you've heard the truth. You've heard the gospel. Every week we say it. Every week we proclaim that Jesus saves if we replace our faith in him and turn from our sin. Every week we tell you these details and we hold up the good news. You can't miss it. Maybe you know that by submitting to Jesus, he will ask you to stop doing something that you don't want to stop or to give up something you don't want to give up. Maybe you don't have an evidence problem, but you have a faith problem. Friends, ask God to help your unbelief. Ask God to help you give up those things that are so easily entangling you. Ask God to help you repent of your sin. Ask God to, to give you a joy for righteousness and terror at your sin. That's what repentance is. It's a full life change, it's turning into, in a completely different direction. Ask God to help you repent, that you'd grieve your actions, that you'd place yourself under the rule and authority of Jesus. Book of James, the writer says, God opposes the proud. But he exalts those that are humble. Friends, humble yourself before God. Repent and believe in him. And you will experience with the rest of us believers the amazing grace of God. So that you can say with the great hymn writer John Newton, the former slave trader, you can say with him amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found, was blind, but now, but now I see. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we were blind. Father, we were completely blind to you and your ways. Father, we acknowledged you not. We lived our own way, our own lives, according to our own rule. We had re- rejected You and Your work in our lives. We had rejected the Gospel. We had run the opposite direction away from You. We had wanted nothing to do with You. And yet God, in Your grace, and Your amazing grace, You have saved us. You have given us sight to see. You have given us ears to hear. Father, You have brought us to yourself and have saved us when we deserved it not we rebelled against you god but you have loved us so much that you sent your one and only son to die for us to take upon your justice and your wrath so that we can have a relationship with you oh father we thank you for that we thank you that you're working in our lives father we ask for help that you would help our unbelief Father, for those of us who are believers here, Father, help us to believe you, Father, in the anxieties of our lives, in the difficulties in our marriage, the difficulties in school or at work or with debt. Father, help us in our unbelief. Help us to believe in you, that you give us everything we need for life and for godliness. Father, that Christ's compassion plus Christ's power is everything we need. Father for those of us who don't yet believe, who are non-believers, Father, we ask that today would be the day that today would be the day that they would believe, that they would turn from their sin, that they'd reject their old ways, that they would see clearly, God, would you drop the scales from their eyes even today? Father, would you give them sight to see? Would you unharden their hearts? Would you unblind their eyes? Would you open up their ears to accept this message? Father, Move them to salvation, Father. We ask you, the one who is the author of salvation from beginning to the end. Oh, Father, we praise you for your work. We thank you that we can worship freely in this land and to proclaim your words of life to a dying world. We pray all this in the mighty, saving name of Jesus. Amen.